Our reading this morning in Mark 5 is a story within a story. We didn't read the first bit about Jairus's daughter, and we didn't read the last bit when Jesus goes and essentially raises her from the dead. So this story emerges in this little kind of sandwich where Jesus is on his way to do something that everybody thought was very important, but he comes across this woman in terrible need and stops for her. So before we get on to the the discipleship, the formational aspects of this story, I think we should just stop and remember what Mark's doing here. And that is Mark's intent in telling these stories is to help us see that in Jesus has come God and his kingdom. And that in Jesus, we see what God intends for humanity. And so Mark is telling this story, and you know, biblical scholars will tell us that Mark's most favorite words in this gospel is immediately. So he shows Jesus immediately doing this, and immediately doing this, immediately doing this. And there's a pace to this gospel that the other gospels don't have. It's almost breathless in Mark's wanting to tell people how great Jesus is, his teachings, these miracles, and wanting to point us to him so that we might actually follow him. So remember, Mark's being an evangelist. And Mark was the one from whom we get an idea like, follow me, with a question mark. He, he and the other three evangelists are the ones who are telling us this story for this specific reason. So this unnamed woman is trapped. Trapped in a kind of unspeakable weakness, incurable body, hungering and thirsting for relief in certainly ways that us guys probably cannot imagine. Probably her spirit's crushed. It's very likely when modern doctors read this story that there's probably some uterine pain here somewhere. I mean, you know, we can't know for sure exactly what a modern diagnosis would be, but certainly something unbearable is going on. She can't bear children. She's undoubtedly hurt and confused by the marginalization she's feeling. No one hugs her. Not a one. No laying on of hands to heal her. She's unclean. One female commentator I read said this, that this unnamed woman carries a psychological, physical, and spiritual weariness in her. A weariness with disenfranchising social implications. And all this is completely unyielding because her bleeding's unyielding. And yet she becomes not only in this text, but echoing down through 2,000 years of history, an icon. She's the memorable voice in this text. So the passage begins, you can see, with this, or carries on with this, this idea that she had heard reports about Jesus. So probably she had heard the kinds of things that Mark's been revealing to us. And so she thinks to herself, if I can even t- if only I can even touch his garments, and I want you to focus on that word even for a minute. If I can even touch his garments, I will be made well. And I want you to focus on that word even because I think it makes us wonder, well, what promise or potential did this woman see in Jesus? What was it that was giving rise to her expectation? And as Beth alluded to in our prelude this morning, we're pretty certain that this woman had a mixed worldview. 
And it's pretty certain that she was operating here out of superstition. Because one of the superstitions of the day was that if a person, and typically a man, you know, a ruler or a really important religious figure or something, that their clothing mediated whatever was in them. So that was just one of the kind of superstitions that was going around first century Palestine. And it seems clear that to one degree or another, this woman was engaging in that. That if she could just touch this person of rank, of dignity, of power, think of today like we think of healing crystals. Seriously, not much removed from that. Kind of this mixture of, of religion and superstition is likely what was going on in her. So her confidence is partially in magic-like notions. Yet Jesus rewards her. Maybe he sees in her this deep determination, maybe a determination funded by desperation. Maybe he sees in her how she's inspired by the Spirit and has a kind of quiet confidence mixed with this inspiration and desperation mixed with maybe a hope. I mean, just think for a moment, what would have energized her to get out of the house? What would have animated her to go into the crowd that she knew she had no business being in just because Jesus was in the crowd? And somehow that became enough for her. And so the story goes on, as you all know, that touching Jesus's robe, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. You know, as a guy, I can't imagine what that might feel like, but I know that I have moments where I feel like so exhausted that I feel like everything, I feel almost like empty on the inside. You ever had those sorts of moments? For me, they often come in traveling. And, and then when you feel better, you feel like a solidness in you. I don't know, maybe it was something like that, but she's aware. She's like immediately aware that, that something deep within me is different. And so you see the story continues that Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him and that he then begins to look around in the crowd wondering who touched my garments. And there's a little aside here about the 12 that we don't have time to get into who are they apparently a little irritated at Jesus because they're like, uh, come on, we got to go uh, heal Jarius' daughter and uh, we can't be stopping. Uh, how are we supposed to know who touched you? Like, hello. But the woman is not responding that way. The woman at this point knows that she's about to be totally exposed before a holy God. She's got to be wondering, will he reject me too? Will, see, will he see this as a mixed motive, dopey little thing to try to touch his garment? She likely wondered, will he publicly shame me? I think she had to be wondering, is he going to be mad at me because I just made him unclean? I just did the one thing a woman in my position cannot do. I just made this guy, the holy of holies, unclean. That can't be a good thing. Had to make her wonder, will I be cast out? I mean, she knows that she's not supposed to be there in the crowd, and she knows Jesus knows she's not supposed to be there. So as he's turning around wondering who touched me and their eyes lock, she's gotta be thinking I'm in some sort of big trouble here. But she knows something's happened to her. And I just want you to pause for a moment and just consider how this points up to us, the utterly necessary 
experiential component of Christianity. I'm aware that there's an unnecessarily doctrinal component, that there is, there's history and there's ideas contained in Christianity. I get it. I just read this week Dennis's new book on systematic theology to endorse it for him, and I remember reading it thinking, wow, like this is amazing. I can't imagine anybody keeps all this stuff in their head. Seriously, just remembering the, the amazing content there is associated with Christianity, but it can never be reduced to that. There's a necessary experiential component where we know something has happened to me. Like Debbie and I could tell you what, how we felt the night that we got converted at Calvary Chapel Riverside, Greg's place. We could tell you exactly how we felt. We knew that something had happened in us. And now I've got, you know, 40, whatever it is, years of, of like knowing that something is happening in me and that funds something really important. Now, of course, it's sort of guided and framed by what we might think of as Christian thought or the history of doctrines or something, of course. But that frame is meant to hold a life. Are you feeling me here? That, that frame is not meant to just sit there sort of nakedly on the wall. It's to help fund a life in God. And this is what this, this woman is coming into. So knowing, you know, she's the cause of the commotion, you know, knowing she'd come in fear and trembling, she falls down finally before Jesus and she tells him the whole truth. I just love this. She reveals her whole heart, mind, and beliefs. Like, well, I just supposed because I thought, you know, that if I could just touch that, you know, something would happen here. This is huge courage, I think, flowing from huge gratitude that something had happened to her. And I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. He has Jesus saying to her daughter, you took a risk of faith and now you're healed and whole. Live well, be blessed, be healed of your plague. Now daughter is a term of intimate, tender endearment. Healing her marginalization and elevating her to the status of community. And I spent some time looking it up. This is the only time Jesus ever does this to anybody. This is the only person who Jesus speaks to in that kind of way, daughter. And it just makes me wonder at least if naming was not a part of the miracle here. To finally be seen, to finally be named, and then to be named in such a tender, affectionate, drawing into the family sort of way. I mean, come on, just think about the word daughter means. Essentially, Jesus is saying to her, you may have been excluded from your social community, but you're now a child of God. Welcome to life in my Father's kingdom. Be blessed, live well, go be healed of your plague, live now in the kingdom of God. And so while unnamed in history, She's named by and has been in the presence of God the last 2,000 years. Think about that for a moment. Where's this girl been? 2,000 years named in heaven, sitting at the presence of God in his family, standing for us who, you know, kind of look back at her in history. She stands for us as an icon of courage, of believing, of, of a seeking heart. For all of us who feel unclean and unworthy to come to Jesus, she is the icon of people who carry around in them an essential sense of I don't matter. 
I don't count. Uh, there's nothing here for me. I've just got to live with whatever our brokennesses might be. But there's a moment here of personal growth, I think both for her and maybe for us. You know, Jesus undoubtedly knows, either just because he knows because he's Jesus or she told him, that she had faith in his clothing, probably the tassels of his robe. But Jesus wants to make it personal. He doesn't want to sit there. Just picture this. Jesus doesn't want her receding into the crowd, slipping back into still magical thinking ways. But he says to her, rather, go in peace. He's making it personal. And for her, this isn't just a freedom from inner anxiety, as important as that is. And for us, when we hear Jesus say, go in peace, this isn't just a freedom from inner anxiety. But it's meant to convey to us, to actually bless us with, to give us wholeness, like a completeness of life. Kind of that, that profound experience, we're back to that again that profound experience of well-being and salvation that comes from God. And so actually go in peace, like go live life in my Father's kingdom, bears with it an invitation. Because implied in go in peace, go in the realm of God is follow me. And so this story stands as an icon to us, I think, because whether we're here this morning like a Jarius, a person of high estate, or whether we're here this morning like a woman of low estate, what Mark's trying to tell us is that we can and should come to Jesus counting on his power and restoration. But I've been at this long enough to know just living my own life and caring for Debbie and her decades-long issues, medical issues, I know enough to know that this is not magic. And I know enough to know that most are not healed. Now, I have seen incredible healings in my life. Incredible, firsthand and secondhand. Amazing. I could stand here for hours and tell you stories of amazing healings I've seen in my life. But most aren't healed. The truth is, many of our loved ones suffer greatly. And this has been true for the whole history of the church. And frankly, this lady probably had other big problems that weren't immediately healed. Think of her economic status. She's never been able to work. Well, now she's physically healed, but she's likely got no income. And there's no Medicare, no welfare, no Medicaid. So she likely walked away with serious economic issues, relational issues, and probably related physical symptoms. If you think of almost like anemia or something, think of the physical weakness and fatigue that she probably walked out of that crowd with. Her life was not probably made golden with no challenges. So I say that to say that there's a mystery at the intersection of suffering and healing. And it's a mystery that's not solved by thinking bad things about God. In fact, in my experience, the mystery's not actually solved. It's lived into. I don't know, it was a few years ago when something was probably going on with Debbie, and I remember thinking, what do you do with suffering? And I was sitting with it and thinking about it. I don't know, it could have been my own stuff. I don't know what was prompting it exactly. But I do remember the Spirit saying to me, here's what you do with suffering. You put your face in it. You don't run from it. You don't medicate yourself with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
You put yourself in it. Because if suffering's what's real, that's where God is. God's always in reality. God's not in our approaches to medicate the pain of reality. What God does is make us competent by the Spirit to stand in reality. So I've found that the mystery is hardly ever solved, at least not in this life. It's just lived into by holding God to be awesome in our minds, coming to him always, and if not receiving what we want in the way we want it or in the timing we want it, then we count on him to make sense of our suffering so that someday, I know that someday I will be delighted for the actual life that God has given me, that I will be thankful for it, and that my hoped-for life, you know, life's, life of, of Porsches and being a major league baseball player, houses on the beach or whatever, that that wish for life, it will, I don't know, take its place wherever it takes it, but someday in God, I know that I will see the goodness of God in my life as I've actually known it if I just keep my face in that life, not a wished-for life. So I think I just wanna help us think this morning in terms of our own discipleship, in terms of our own follow me. Can we all just admit this morning that while seeking to be as theologically and biblically accurate as possible, and I do, I teach this stuff. I seek it with my whole heart. I wanna be as right about things as I possibly can. And I honestly strive to live a holy and godly and righteous life. But I think if we're gonna keep it real in this business of following Jesus, of trying to follow him, that we just need to admit to each other that we all are, like this woman, a mix of fear and faith. We are a mix of clarity and superstition. We are a mix of obedience and waywardness. And as I say, in saying this, I don't mean to enable lazy thinking or sloppy living. I just mean to say this, that I would quickly fix whatever I could see is wrong in my life. Quickly, I want to, I desire it. But sometimes, if I'm being honest, I can't clearly see either the good to do or the wrong to avoid. I mean, I just have to say, I don't know about you, that I see through a glass darkly. And that it pains me. Because loving God as I do Loving Debbie and my kids as I do, loving you as I do, I want to get it right. It pains me. But the truth is, I see through a glass darkly. Now, from a sort of a biblical narrative or theological point of view, I want you to hear both in the text of Mark as he tells this story of Jesus and he tells mixed up people like Peter who denies Jesus and this woman who seeks him in this mixed way. You know, as we hear all the humanity of this story, that from, a, from the point of view of the biblical narrative, so in this case, the gospel of Mark, and from a theological point of view, our searching for godly wisdom, our searching for obedience is a sign that God is at move in the world. Is it not for you? Lord knows I wasn't doing this before I was created, before I was converted. So our conversions, th these desires that are changing for wisdom and for obedience, this is, this is the sign for Mark or one of the signs that God's on the move in the world and that he is renewing his creation and that the final consummation will someday come. So as we sit here this morning, all of us with our, our own set of brokennesses, and interacting with God in, in imperfect, mixed ways. What do we suppose God thinks about this struggle of ours? 
Well, we understand God best by looking at Jesus, right? Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, is the exact representation of the Father. So we understand, Jesus, we understand God best by looking at Jesus. And our story this morning assures us that he's never too busy going somewhere else, nor thinking too little of your mixed faith to care for you. Right? So guys, gals, like, where are you, that woman? In what place in your life are you, that woman, where there's something chronic? Chronic fear, chronic lust, whatever. Where there's something chronic, you maybe just need to hear this morning, to hear the assurance of this story that, okay, Jesus is busily going off to Jairus' daughter. And there's this mixed up woman and neither his busyness nor seeing our mixed upness makes him not care well for us. I remember when the paperback version of the, the first books of the, of the Bible and the message came out, I had a little paperback of, of um, Matthew. And I remember excitedly reading it. Remember, they were just coming out sort of book by book. And at the end of Matthew 28, where you have the Great Commission, I've just adored this for however long it's been, 20, 25 years. So Jesus is gonna meet his friends in Jerusalem, right? And so kind of just picture the, the 11 now walking up a road towards Jesus who's walking down a road and they meet and Eugene has this, that some of these guys though held back. They weren't sure about risking themselves totally in this Jesus movement. Weren't sure about really totally following him. But Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and sent them out as his apostles, Jesus undeterred. And so this morning, as you consider your followership of Jesus, maybe you could take with you this thought. There is nothing in you, there's nothing about you that deters God from you. Recent, chronic, intermittent, there's nothing about you that deters God from you. Come follow me, he says.